Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Anthropological, serving up some real-life applications for some very anthropological theories. My name is Kasira Hill. I am your local Chicago graphic designer, anthropologist, and I'm telling you right now, you need to get you a partner that can do both, sis. We can live off $20 a week, or we can spend $1,000 in a day. And I say that, well, I'll let David come in, and then we'll talk about the topic. It's all going to make sense in a minute. Hey, everybody. It's me, David Moore. I'm a Chicago-based bartender, founder of Spill, and Opulence. She owns everything. Yes. Today, if you can't tell by these little snippets we're dropping in here, we're going to talk about indulgence. So, yeah, Welcome. All right, y'all, let's get into some anthropological theory here. Instead of offering some insights into the psychological reasons why humans and our ancestors indulged in things and why those things felt good, right? Talking about our little lizard brain or talking about some fundamental evolutionary moments for our brain to develop these things. I want to shift to talk about a little bit more of a history theory and give more of a historical understanding of moments of leisure and moments of free time that evolved in ancient societies. So we can now kind of draw a thread to understand when did free time, play, sports, leisure time really come into our societal functions. So there's a really great textbook that I had during college that does a great job of introducing leisure and free time in ancient societies. That book is titled Recreation and Leisure in Modern Society by Daniel McLean, Amy Hurd, and Denise M. Anderson. I do note here before getting into the quote that I'm going to read from their chapter, Early History of Recreation and Leisure, I want to say that often anthropological and historical archaeological uh, textbooks, they have a they have a trend of saying that societies developed, evolved, or became stronger along a narrative of industrialization, when in this instance, particularly, societies can stay the same in terms of tribal or chiefdoms or small kingdoms, etc, and still have developed leisure time in their own right. So you might hear some language in this quote, that gives air to an idea that the more quote unquote, a developed society moves forward, the more free time or leisure is present in that society, which is not necessarily true. As prehistoric societies advanced, they developed specialization of functions. Humans learned to domesticate plants and animals, which permitted them to shift from a nomadic existence based on hunting and food gathering to a largely stationary way of life based on grazing animals and planting crops. Ultimately, ruling classes developed, along with soldiers, craftsmen, peasants, and slaves. As villages and cities evolved and large estates were titled, often with complex water storage and irrigation systems, and harvested by lower-class workers, upper-class societies gained power, wealth, and leisure. Thus, the aristocracy of the first civilizations that developed in the Middle East during the five millennia before the Christian era, we find for the first time in history 
leisure class. Now, specifically, this has to do with the leisure class. There are moments of leisure and free time and play that are integrated into all human life, right? We see this as well in chimps and other intelligent animals that are similar to our own species. But of course, today we're talking about indulgence. And indulgence is a word that was definitely coined by Christianity kind of in opposition to the idea that we can live indulgently and freely and all of our whims can be met. That understanding of indulgence was shown a negative light on um, because of the parameters of early Catholicism or early Christianity specifically. So early applications of the idea of indulgence can be noted in these ancient city leisure classes. And I'm talking specifically about ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Israel, the Fertile Crest, ancient Egypt, All of these cities had what we understand to be a leisure class, folks that weren't necessarily doing hard labor to earn money, but rather maybe running estates, maybe folks that we understand as lords or lordships in Western culture, right? These folks had an abundance of resources. And I think that in ancient cities and ancient cultures, abundance was something that really had a close connection with indulgence. We can all imagine, you know, the ancient... Grecian, the ancient Roman laying on a couch and being fed grapes with different femmes rolling around them and, you know, folks enjoying themselves in front of them. Very performative, right? (laughs) In a lot of resource-rich, abundant, and influential ancient cities, this leisure class often coincided with the ruling class, right? But these ancient cities in which those classes lived had new forms of architecture that led to, you know, more leisure time and kind of gave way to that culture, right? We can talk about gymnasiums and bathhouses and opulent parks and uh, specifically like public baths as well. This is ancient Greece and this is ancient Rome. Areas for play, coliseums, big sporting events, right? The Olympics, X, Y, and Z. These are all leisurely acts. They're also all cultural acts. And although the laboring class often did engage in some of those public spaces, those bougier kind of bathhouses, parks, and what have you led to a moment where private estates now were also being created for a specific group of folks to have a very indulgent afternoon, right, in the sun or what have you. For nomadic folks or tribal folks that didn't live in areas of cities that were, you know, functioning on ruling class and working class kind of structures, there's still plenty of opportunities for leisure and playtime. And often play and leisure was something really incorporated by a variety of different nomadic cultures for children to learn. And not only for children to learn, but also leisure and free time being attached to ritual or religious moments as well, right? If we're celebrating a harvest, right, we all know what a harvest festival is like. That has to do with a lifestyle where 
harvesting and planting and cultivating the earth is a really integral part of your day to day. But in celebration of those free moments, we get to harvest and celebrate the abundance of food and all of that. So there's an interesting tie both in nomadic and more tribal societies, along with uh, city centers and larger uh moments of civilization where ritual and leisure often go hand in hand. Cultural importance for certain labors or certain crafts go hand in hand in celebrating or utilizing those crafts in moments of free time, right? Music, instruments, crafting beer, drinking beer, right? <laughs> being a fighter and going to a coliseum and that being your your celebratory moment, either watching or participating, right? I said I wasn't going to get into the theory very much, but I think it's a really interesting snippet to kind of wrap this up on is how religion has negatively viewed moments of leisure or even specifically indulgence. And I mentioned it briefly earlier with Christians really coining the term indulgence in a negative light, something to that's a sin or adjacent to, to sin. As much as there are us out there that do not identify with religion or actively practice a specific religion, the ideas that indulgence is something adjacent to sin that Christianity really honed in on. And there are other religions that did that as well. Hinduism at a certain point had to hone in on an idea of opulence as being, you know, exorbitant and too much and all of that. But I think it's interesting in Western culture that we're living right now, these ideas that too much indulgence or et cetera, et cetera, is still quite adjacent to sin or something that we don't boast about, right? It has to do with class, right, and classism, but it also has to do with an ideology that sometimes these indulgence or often these indulgent moments that are leisurely and maybe, you know, consuming too much consumption is also a part of indulgence, um, which is also shown in a negative light, that these can really tie into how we talk about indulgence or how we indulge in certain things right now in our culture right here. So if I can reduce this all down in a nice digestible snippet, I'd say that free time and leisure in city societies as they developed or kingdoms as they developed really had to do with a ruling class and a leisure class. And some of those contexts of leisure class play into our current understandings of what it means to safely indulge and what it means to be too bougie or too indulgent or too boisterous about your ability to indulge. And then on the other side, there are plenty of nomadic, tribal, and smaller communities that incorporate play and free time and leisure attached to ritual or laborious functions like farming or crafting or being a warrior or a soldier or a basket weaver that often incorporate, you know, free time, leisure and celebration because those things are so important in a given society. All right, let's shift gears. Kasira, I know you're ready to have a kiki. And in the famed words of Mariah Carey, a no-no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're going to do it. So I want to talk about indulgence, luxury, opulence, all of it. And what I'm excited about is that indulgence doesn't necessarily mean um, the money that goes into something. And we're going to talk about that throughout this episode, that indulgence is really a personal 
um, kind of gratification. And that could mean relaxation, that can mean self-care, it can also mean indulging in what you buy. And so I want to talk to you about what you and I indulge in, because I already know a little bit of what you indulge in, because when you're feeling down and out, I'll send you bottles of rosé. And I'm like, she's going to fucking, this is going to be her moment. She's going to love it. And I'm very similar. I, I like, I like nice things and I like feeling, I like feeling a lot wealthier than I really am. I love Dynasty and I look at Joan Collins and I'm like, that's, that is goals for me. <laughs> that is goals. So what is the last thing that you feel like you've really indulged in? I think long-term travel. So um, I'm in a place right now where I'm about to step into uh, a three-week road trip where I'll be working on, on the road. And um, I'm doing that for that length of time, not only for COVID safety, but also indulging and in really being able to be out of the house. And so I think... Um, that's my most recent is just saving up a whole shit ton of money to be away from the house and really indulging in a different lifestyle. And I think that that indulging in a different lifestyle or having something that's different than your normal, um, regardless of expensive or non-expensive, can definitely be a moment of indulgence. What would you say yours is? What's your most recent? Um, I feel like the last thing I indulged in was actually something for Matt. So for those that are listening and don't know, Matt is my, my boyfriend, my partner. And I bought him, um, an Apple watch just for no reason. I just did it cause I could, and it felt really good. And I feel like, you know, I just felt, I like buying gifts for people. I'm like a big Christmas person and I like to do like really extravagant moments for other people. And on the flip side, I actually get really anxious and uncomfortable when somebody gives me a gift, which is ironic because I do have like, there's absolutely a part of my personality that has a bit of materialism and is like a, a total like lover of jewelry and fun, you know, extravagant things. And yet I much prefer to get it for myself. I like to indulge in myself, but don't feel like it's anybody else's place to do it for me. Um, and well, I guess like, okay, I'll just say this because <laughs> Matt already knows. So for example, you know, Matt and I already know we're going to be life partners. And so I was getting an engagement ring for him. And when I was getting the engagement ring, I got myself one too, because I was like, I would never expect him to get me one. And then when he found out about this moment, keep in mind, by the way, we're not engaged. He just knows that I have this in my possession. He was like, what are you doing? Don't get yourself an engagement ring. Like, let me get it for you. And I'm like, no, no, you shouldn't. Like, let me, like, I, that's just sort of part of my personality now where it's like, I'll take care of myself. I don't need you to do it for me. I'm very non-codependent. I'm very dependent on myself and in other words, independent. And I really kind of like to splurge on myself a lot, but um, have never been one to really welcome others to do it for me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think um, I'm so large and in charge with making plans. And I have a partner that kind of looks to me as the default decision maker when it comes to going yeah. out or getting something or blah, blah, blah. So I think that, you know, with as we're talking about our partners, like, you know, Andy is not going to get me something that's experientially like, you know, bougie um because he knows that i'm going to find out what it is and get me that 
<laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think to the point, I want to fold in like uh, what it's like to indulge in things that are, I mean, I just want to get it to the T. I want to talk about buying expensive things because. All right, let's do it. <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna talk about the nuances and all of that with <laughs> yeah. our guest. I just want to like talk about things that are nice. So, for example, for Valentine's Day, this was a me decision. Got us a hotel at Nobu. Decided to spend a lot of money on sushi to the to the room, but that's a very different um, kind of bougie moment than like going to a club and like renting out a booth and like yes. having the bottle people bring the bottles over like i don't love it's that too much it's too much i agree it's where we like completely align on i like doing things more in private that feel a little indulgent and a little luxury <clears throat> kind of mm-hmm. influenced but i don't i do not love going to a restaurant and somebody bringing out like something on fire or something where like attention mm. is brought to me i like the if i'm gonna splurge it's like really not for the public to know about so like obviously we're on a podcast we're talking about what we spend our money on (laughs) so it's a little ironic but i i generally like i'll never post when i get something new or exciting and you know it's it's not it's a little it's a little gross to me but when i knew that when you and i were talking i knew that you went to nobu and stayed there and did a a little weekend getaway see i looked at that as like a total self-care weekend that was so deserved. Mm. But the thing is, is like when you don't build it into your mindset that that's self-care and that's actually like a form of indulgence, you're like, oh, I'm like treating myself. I'm like, yeah, but like do it more often. Do it twice a month. You deserve it. So yeah. I, I love that. I'm trying yeah, to get, I, mm-hmm. I was gonna say, I'm trying to think of the last thing that I spent like for myself money on. And I'm thinking that the last thing was when I got a decent check from a client, I went to Benny's and bought like eight bottles of expensive whiskey that I knew I could just have sitting on my home bar. That would be like a cute moment to show off when friends come over, when things reopen. Like I was, yeah, I felt really good about it and I still feel really good about it. No guilt, felt like a good purchase, don't regret it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as as you were talking, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, indulgence at the core, whether it be money or just a little self-care moment or what have you, uh, is really about the fact that we don't quote unquote need that. I right. Or it doesn't serve a, you know, uh, being like a productive purpose. And I think, yes. you know, I covered that in the anthropological discussion is like we, anything that's indulgent for us, we're humans. We've got spare free time because of work labor, you know, division and this and that we get to have downtime. And what we do with that downtime is, you know, it, it's not productive time. We're able to just kick it and do something nice. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's about taking whether it be expensive or not expensive, about doing something that's not necessary. It's certainly not necessary for me to go out and order um, a really nice cocktail and have it, but I enjoy it and I indulge in it. I think to that point also like in public settings, I also get a little weird or guilty because I also do this when I'm bitter and serving people and they ask me for the best whiskey that we have. When I really do want to go somewhere and like want a nice scotch that I'm not willing to buy from my back bar, then I have this weird like dynamic with the server being like, yeah, but I promise I'm not an asshole. That's just trying to get oh my like, God. 
<laughs> oh, a nice whiskey God. or like talk you up about it because I'm actually very curious about like what is nice and what is yummy. That like, is literally though the hospitality like industry's fault here, where we like <laughs> always judge people for behaving a certain way. That like we find ourselves sort of giving a hint of that when we go out, but we're like, but no, just to be clear, like I'm in the industry, I've never liked this, but you know, it's just like my one night yeah. out, and they're like, okay, you're sis, you're just like this, so. <laughs> This is you. Hush up. Yeah, I'll get you our reserve menu, Miss yes. Fancy Pants. Yeah. Yes. It's uh it's fun to talk about. I think indulgence is fun. I think it's I think if you're I think responsibility and indulgence are two different things. You know, it's like I think you can be irresponsible with purchases, specifically if you're not taking care of the things that you do technically need or those around you that like need something. And if you're if you're constantly indulging with no responsibility of of the things that are necessary then sure there's a little bit of a a question mark there but otherwise i think i think indulgence is a fun topic i know we were excited to bring this episode to to anthropological this season because it's nice to have just a moment of levity and and a lot of the serious discussions we have and it's nice to think about how we'll get to indulge when things reopen and and you know maybe when this episode is airing we'll get to indulge a little bit more and listen to it together Hey, Vlad, how are you? Hi, great. Thanks for having me today. Of course. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, our uh, readers, and tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Vlad Novikov, and I've been working in hospitality ever since I could legally in Illinois. (laughs) Um, But it's always been a long passion of mine ever since I was like a little kid with uh, buying glass from garage sales and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, my background is in classics and chemistry, which is like Latin and Greek and um, yeah, chemistry. Uh, And I've been working in now in kind of uh, cocktail bars, you know, for the last like five or six years, which has been great now into management. Would you say that buying glassware at garage sales and thrift stores is the road to becoming gay and or a bartender? Or I mean, both? absolutely, absolutely. I think- Of course. <laughs> I think uh, it's one of the, the big themes I find in, uh, in people as I connect with them over time is that we all had this like strange fascination with delicate or antique pretty things. Yeah, you buy your first Nick and Nora and you're like, oh my God, I know what I'm supposed to be in life. This is amazing. Yeah, I remember moving out of my parents' house and my mom's like, hey, are you going to take the glassware? And I was like, what? There's three cases of glassware that I bought over 15 years living with my mother. Jeez. All right, well, you are here because we want to talk about the discussion around indulgence and luxury, especially in spaces of hospitality, bars. So the kind of general question that we're kind of posing to you and then Kasira and I will also jump in with our kind of perspectives on this is, um, you know, why do we indulge? How do we indulge? Um, Whether it's from the perspective of being a guest somewhere or a consumer or curating the spaces. So um, I want to give you the space to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the concept of indulgence is uh, really interesting to me. And I think it's tied uh, very closely to um, this idea of luxury. And I always like to frame the concept in that way, 
because I think the two are very intertwined in the sense that you indulge in what I would consider to be a luxury. You don't necessarily indulge in things that aren't luxurious in a way. And um, when we talk about that word, um, uh, obviously, you know, that's, uh, we can look at the formal definition of what that is, but um, uh, if I could actually loop you guys back in before I expound on this, um, the last question I ask during any interview process, after I've already done everything, is I ask people, hey, in a, one quick sentence, can you, um, just because when I'm interviewing people, I always say, oh, I'd love to work at a luxury environment, and they use that word often, so I kind of throw it back to them at the end, and I always ask, what does the word luxury mean to you, in like a sentence, or um, and if I could just throw that back, I'm, I'm really curious because I'll give you kind of what my answer is and what I'm looking for. And I think that frames what this conversation really is about. Okay. Um, I was so not prepared for this. The first thing that came to my mind though, when I think of luxury is Beyonce's music video, Upgrade You, where she's literally bathing in diamonds and gems. And I'm like, I remember seeing that as like a 12 or 13 year old being like, I get it now, that, that is opulence, that is luxury. And to me, I look at luxury as like a very poignant word of wealth and, you know, ridiculous indulgence. Totally, Sierra? I think when it comes to luxury and indulgence, I think my first um, feelings of luxury or indulgence for sure, I think back to like, you know, you get a cookie from your parents who are allowed to have a cookie. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of finagle your way to maybe having some more cookies. <laughs> and that is probably like my first example. So it's like, ooh, something that like, you know, I understand to be finite or something that I understand to be, you know, oh, I can only have a little bit because, you know, this is something that's super sugary or this is something that we don't have a whole lot of or it's a little bit pricier to buy or whatever. Um, so I think that, you know, that's definitely my first thought when it comes to it, just like being able to finagle your way to have a little bit more of something that you don't usually get to have. Totally. And I think those are um, very much two of the main ways that people look at it. For me, when I'm talking to people and I ask that question, I'm basically looking for one of two answers. Um, one answer that people generally give is very similar to um, David's, where it's about um, explicitly things being expensive or um, uh, very nice. Uh, and then the other one is going to be closer to kind of what Kasir was talking about, where it's, um, it's not necessarily about the cost of the item. It's more that it's a little bit of an extra or a little bit of a special thing. And it always refers to interpersonal relationships. So you brought up specifically your mother. And it's that point of a person taking care of you or giving you something extra, that little bit of extra, whatever that is. And so for me, when I look at those two things, a lot of times we intertwine the idea of um, expense and kind of this like extra little indulgence, as it were, bringing, bringing it back around to that. And for me, in, in the spaces that I tend to work in, um, really the fo our focus is that little extra push. And very often that ends up being expensive or it'll be a, a little extra into an expensive level, but the base is that um, caring for and giving that extra level of hospitality to people um, is kind of how I frame it uh, in the world. 
So for me, that's what indulgence is. It's, you know, a little bit extra. Um, I was talking to someone about it just the other day. And for me, one of the most luxurious things is um, sleeping until I wake up. Uh, in the sense that, you know, you, you go to bed and you don't have an alarm set. And, oh, uh, when are you waking up? You know, I have nothing to do right. tomorrow. I have nowhere to be. That is like my greatest luxury. And again, maybe it's me taking care of myself, but there's always some sort of a, a care and then an extra level of things you don't normally get. I like that idea of, of care and, you know, whether it be self-care or something that you know someone else would really enjoy, um, whether they've expressed that prior to or there's just kind of like lending trends. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of care in there because a lot of what we do to make people feel special or feel like they're having um, an indulgent moment in a bar or that they in a hospitality setting, food or beverage setting um, is is care and attention as, as well. So I think that, um, you know, there's different levels of quote unquote professionalism when you step into a space, whether that be, you know, uh, you know, white collar kind of serving space or whatever. But that level of care and hospitality kind of shifts, um, not only just based on the environment, but what those folks kind of expect and what they um, you know, are anticipated to kind of enjoy, right? So whether it be a level of care where you're running around and you're, you know, maybe you're doing some catering and the level of care and, and luxury that you're offering to that environment is that people are consistently fed, that there's a wide variety of food available and they're little bites and people feel like they don't have to go out of their way to find something that someone is already there to kind of anticipate their needs and give it to them. How do you feel about that? I, uh, you're hitting the nail on the head. And that's very much to me what, what this is about, having things kind of taken care of for you. And um, one of the uh, big framing questions we have for this is kind of, um, you know, what do people, what are they looking for when they indulge or when they go to kind of these um, uh, exclusive or wealthy areas? And um, in that sense, obviously, they come to feel taken care of. Um, they come and um, they also, even people who are in the top 1% or 0.001% or whatever level, I think all humans have an inherent need to indulge um, and to get a little bit of pleasure for them, no matter where they are on the socioeconomic spectrum. And that's why I wanted to frame it as not as separated from wealth and, and expensive because everyone has a need to indulge. It's just these people do it at a, uh, our indulgences, for, yeah, you know, like they, they, they might never need to wake up. Like, oh, I don't need to work. I, it wouldn't be a luxury for them to sleep until they wake up because that's every day. Um, so I think definitely people come into these. Why were you looking at me when you said that? <laughs> I'm sorry, God. No, no, I just, uh, you know, um, it's, it's just different for different people. And um, I, uh, I, I think it's important to understand that, that they still have a need for that. Um, and that's kind of what a lot of these spaces do is they, they provide that level. Um, and uh, also that sense of community because people... Um, that go into these kinds of places on a regular basis uh, will view it as a part of who they are. 
You know, we, 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 totally. we signal to other people who we are by where we eat. Yes. Well, actually, and that's something that I feel like um, having worked in these spaces and also being a guest in these types of spaces that are considered like quote unquote luxury or kind of bougie environments, I working in, working in them has their like has such pros and cons. I like I like dressing up and kind of being formal and having this element of sort of fine craft, fine dining element to what I'm doing. Um, and then I always find like people that do that for years always miss working in like divey bar settings because there's just something really lovely also about kind of tossing that out the window and just being a bit more rough around the edges. But I like the idea of considering this from the lens that you can kind of do both at the same time, right? Like you don't need to take away the warmth and the um, humility just because it's a technically luxury space. And I think that that is maybe where the guest side of things gets a little rough for me because I've, I've had many guests, I'm sure we all have, where they kind of take advantage of the luxury element of a place and start treating people poorly because they're like, it must be fixed into the, <laughs> to the cost here that we're allowed to treat you poorly. Um, I find it odd when somebody pays a little bit extra for like the Louis tray that's on the you know top shelf. And so in their minds, that means that the bartender should stop everything they're doing and now only pay attention to them and ignore the rest of the guests that are around them. So I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that there's times where moments of luxury can be really great for both the, the worker and the, the guest. And then I think sometimes it can be taken advantage of just, I guess that's more of a personal identity thing for different people, but just something to know. Yeah, I think that um, there's definitely people that use um, their wealth and, um, as a, uh, and they use these spaces as a space where they can exercise their power um, and the power that they have over the service staff and um, other patrons even, uh, the power of that wealth and money. Uh, and it's one of those things where uh, we definitely feed into it in the sense that, you know, when you have the Louis Trez at these bars, there's a service ritual, there's the big uh, right. plunger uh, pipette. Yes. Uh, yes, and you, you need two people to serve it because one holds the tray and one puts their gloves on. <laughs> right. And then the third person, you know, um, uh, massages the person that ordered it, you know, and uh, oh, but always, yeah. Um, but but it's definitely one of those things where it's it kind of a we do that to help add value to these serves, but also drive revenue for us uh, as businesses. Um, so it's definitely uh, a difficult place, and I think kind of a lot of these other types of places where it's you know. Uh, we talked about kind of that bougie or expensive or like very luxurious setting. Um, I think what you brought up, David, in terms of like, they expect a certain level of uh, service from the staff that is not always reasonable. And one of the big things that unfortunately we have to have is all the staff at these kind of places, we end up needing to be very resilient and learn how to show grace and be calm and kind under pressure, even when being directly berated or harassed. Where there's, um, and I think that's just the hardest part from, a, from an employee perspective. I wanna shift gears a little bit and talk about something that's more 
maybe on the experiential end for me as a server and a bartender in like a craft bar setting, I think um, a lot of what I experienced from um, patrons coming in, folks sitting down, especially so I used to work at the Violet Hour to get specific, you know, it's very, you wait in line, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's this bar that doesn't have much to go on on the outside. It's like a mural and the door is kind of secretive. Um, you can't see it. Like it's not obvious where the door is. So there's folks waiting in line and then you get inside and it's very dark and everything's candlelit and um, you get kind of guided to your seat because you can't see if it was light outside while you were waiting in line. Now your eyes are having to shift down. You know what I'm saying? You're getting a menu. You're looking at the full menu. There's all these cocktails on there, you know, 25 cocktails with all these ingredients that you don't know. Um, And I say that specifically because uh, I think that for that specific setting or even craft bar settings in in a large, um, a lot of what makes it feel exciting and luxurious and and new um, or indulgent is is the fact that it's a little bit of the unknown. And so especially someone coming in that doesn't usually go to a craft bar space or doesn't, you know, uh, see a lot of Amaro's on the back of the bar or doesn't see all these kind of, uh, you know, bespoke ingredients and such um, that coming in and sitting down and having a server or a bartender kind of help you through the menu a little bit, give you some information that you maybe didn't have before can be a luxurious moment because not only are you experiencing something that's kind of of the unknown or something that you're not familiar with, but you're also talking to someone that has a little bit of knowledge and, and now you're kind of being enlightened to something cool and new. Um, I think the same can be said for other environments, um, something like shopping and, tr- and and trying something new or learning new something new about a brand or whatever. But I think especially in a cocktail setting um, that the patrons that I were, you know, was interacting with, the majority of them really just appreciated the fact that they came in not knowing what the hell was going on in here and left having a little bit of knowledge about the craft cocktails that they had and maybe walked away with a little taste of Amaro um, trying something new there that they didn't expect, right? And I think also gifts is a part of that as well. I used to always leave, you know, patrons um, that were coming in for the first time or just like really excited to be there. Um, I left them a little taste of Amaro and I'd tell them a little bit about it. And we had a little moment. We take our little shot and, you know, they left being like, wow, I've learned something new. So I want to touch a little bit on about the unknown, especially in that in that sense and and how we kind of curate a new experience or a learning experience for those that come into a space that we might be serving or... Yeah. I the first thing I actually thought of with that is when I get to take my mom to different bars and restaurants and how incredible it feels to sort of like show off sort of just the industry to people that are not immersed in it. So things that like we take for granted or not even take for granted, but we've just learned a lot about and we feel really comfortable in talking about. And that's like what we spent a lot of our time in educating ourselves on is you know, wine varieties and regions of the world where things are produced. And and so I remember going to a place called Tail Up Goat in Washington, D.C. Um, and she works in D.C. all the time. And she goes to like the same two restaurants or places that she normally goes. I just remember going there. It's very small. I was like, okay, this reminds me a lot of like New York style kind of small alleyway restaurants. 
but we got in they're like you don't have a table oh no like what are we gonna do they're like I mean if you want you could just sit at this this uh like countertop you know we there's two seats here and I was like yeah of course like we're so down for that um and we did it and then the server knew that my mom was not struggling to figure out the wine list but it was all Riesling I just remember that a whole wine list is only Riesling and I was like for me this is just heaven for her she's like but where's your boxed Chardonnay like I'm trying to understand where on the menu I can find you know Franzia and they he was explaining to her you know what's so great about Riesling is that there's just it's so versatile there's a spectrum of flavors and styles and he was like, you know, actually say no more. I'll be right back. And I was like, oh, I already know what he's going to do because this is kind of what I would do if I was a server, which is I'm just going to bring out four tastings and just do it with her and kind of make her night. And he did that. And I got to just watch my mom glow and feel so taken care of. And this is after I've heard stories of her going to places as a solo guest and just being treated like like shit because she was a solo guest and maybe the person perceived that she wouldn't tip well. Um God forbid, maybe she didn't tip well, I don't know. But she just felt so, she just felt truly like massaged and taken care of. And that was luxury and indulgence for her to a T. And I think more than the actual good, the product, it was the service. And so it's really nice to be reminded that moments like that, just being taken care of, looked at in the eye, having a discussion with that does not sound belittling or patronizing can be for a lot of people, for probably most people, and honestly, including myself, depending on like, if I'm going into like a sports or car shop of sorts, and I don't know what's going on, for somebody to speak to you and provide a service that's really level-headed and humble, it's it feels luxurious. It feels like, oh, I'm like, I'm one of their number one focuses right now you feel like you're important in being there and sometimes it just feels really good to be made to feel that way yeah and i think i think that's a it's a great point of that uh being taken care of regardless of where you're at in terms of um either your experience with the bar or um even like that wealth thing um because uh every different there's a full spectrum of people that go into every single bar um, no matter if it's the top end or the craft or the super divey bar, um, you're going to have a spectrum of people. And that is a skewed and a different, you know, curve depending on where you are. But I think the, the, one of the pinnacles of hospitality is when you can take everyone on that spectrum and give them a beautiful experience. So both people that already aren't understand or know Riesling and also people that again are looking for the Oak Chardonnay being able to, uh, make it work for them and take care of them in that way. It's sort of a rethinking of when we're taught first, when we get into hospitality, like the difference between service and hospitality is that like we're providing a service, but hospitality is the way you make people feel. And sort of, I think the conversation on indulgence and luxury is a really cool parallel to that sort of a, especially with, um, I feel like steakhouses and really, really luxury bars tend to not, falter during like this pandemic they they have enough of a sort of pillow or cushion of savings that they're going to be able to survive steakhouses especially and it is a good reminder that sometimes it doesn't have to be like wealth you know actual financial wealth personified in a bar space to equate to luxury or indulgence those are not the only people that can receive that type of um you know quality of dining it can really be more about the the kind of emotional connection you build with people 
The only thing I would actually uh, add on there is Please. a lot of the places, steakhouses and really luxury spots, it's not even just that the business itself maybe is doing well, uh, because a lot of these places are still built on volume. Their business models are built on it and not doing volume, they're still losing money. I think really the distinction is for a lot of these places is that their clientele has not been affected by the pandemic. And well, yeah, that, that's true. Okay. That, that to yep. me is, is, is really what I've seen as, as being um, the greater kind of pattern is that, oh, well, well, I'm working from home this whole time. Uh, and a lot of these wealthy people, in fact, the US stock market has been doing great. Maybe, maybe they're better off than they were now. Um, so a lot of the people that can afford to go to these places regularly aren't as affected. And um, the only other thing that I think we kind of haven't touched is um, uh, in terms of talking about wealth and exclusivity and luxury is the times where there is wealth and exclusivity, but it's not a luxurious experience where people kind of um, either want to buy exclusivity or buy luxury and force it through in a way that it's not naturally forthcoming. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I'm curious, do you have an example of what, of kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, um, as I mentioned, I think in some of these places, people wield their wealth as a way, as a, as power, um, over other people. And, um, they, purchase things or try and get things that are expensive, uh, but not because they actually value that item in itself for the joy that it gives them, but because uh, spending the money is the pleasurable act in itself. So mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, okay, I love Krug, right? It's very expensive. It's very delicious. Would I drink that regularly? No, I cannot afford it. In your series. But yes. Yes. But if I indulge and that's a very special treat for me, I will have a lot of joy and and that's a luxurious indulgence for me. For someone else, they might order it because it's quote the best or um quote the most expensive. And it's not actually an indulgence for them. It doesn't really bring them pleasure in itself. It's more the idea that I can spend this much on this item um, or something like that. Yeah, I think um, that happened a fair amount, uh, whether I'd be working at a bar that had a huge array of a, of a specific kind of spirit, whether it be like rum or whiskey. I think particularly um, rum and whiskey is a great example because all the time, whether it be at Lost Lake or at Violet Hour, um, folks would come in and there'd be that occasional person that was just like, what's the most expensive thing that you have? And let right. me have that. And um, they weren't interested in the notes. They didn't have a preference on what it tasted like. They didn't care. You know what I mean? X, X, Y, and Z. They just came in. They wanted surface level, quote unquote, the best. And just because something is uh, pricey doesn't mean that it is going to taste the best, you know, or, you know what I mean, to your preference. So whenever someone would come in and ask that question, I would kind of flip it on them and be like, I want to hear a little bit more about what you're looking for because I want to get you the best of what your palate is. So if you come in and you're like, 
I want the most expensive whiskey. Okay, great. Here's a $200 pour of Pappy Van Winkle, blah, 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 blah. And cool. But if that's not your kind of spirit, if you don't actually even enjoy that, then I don't really need to pour that for you because this is... um what do you call it when uh, certain spirits are like, it's allocated. We've allocated, got an allocated yeah. amount. Thank you. We've got an allocated amount. And I don't need to pour this for you if you're just here for a level. So, um, you know, I shun a little bit of that when I'm feeling sassy in moments or I'm feeling like I just want to make sure that this person is actually getting something and isn't, you know what I mean? So I think that when someone comes in and it's like, I just want the most expensive thing. Hey, sis, what do you actually like? Because I want to get you the best of what you like, not just the priciest thing with a gold flake on it and caviar on the side. And it's aged for 25 years in an ancient ruin that, you know, blah, 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 blah. None of that really matters if you don't actually enjoy it. So instead, I'm going to give you a really cheap daiquiri that still has a gold flake on it just to give you that moment <laughs> with the daiquiri. The, the I'm just going to pour you heaven hill. I'm just going to pour you heaven hill and you're not even going to know. The <laughs> kind of bow on all of this uh, before we kind of move on into our next segment is I just remember when I was working at Cindy's, we sort of created a general rule and I'm sure we're, I'm sure many places do this, but whenever we had a buyout or a major event and they obviously wanted a full open bar with the whole spirit selection, we just took down all the allocated spirits. We took down any of the top shelf stuff. And I think a lot of bars tend to do this because the hope is that you can kind of spread that love with guests that will really get to appreciate that moment. And although I would never promote the Pappy Van Winkle line as like the greatest whiskeys out there because I don't feel that they are. There is a really wonderful moment for somebody who's been like dying to try it and they've been like waiting to go to a bar to experience it that you get to sort of curate that for them. That's super special and it's and I'm not going to be there to be like it's not even worth it just drink Buffalo Trace. Like no it's actually like let's enjoy the moment together. I'm here for that. I had my first moment with that and it was awesome Um, and having that moment with guests that are just there on a typical day or night of service, I find to be much more impactful and appreciated than just a, a group that is able to use their food and beverage minimum towards their most expensive items. And so I think kind of considering that when people are doing events or doing kind of curating different styles of things for them, these people can buy Pappy whenever they want. And that's why it's, it's, you get your three bottles for the year. You don't want it to kind of go to waste to just anybody. You want to have like service people get to try it if you're able to make that a special deal for them or something like that. So Vlad, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us your thoughts and insight on luxury and indulgence. Um, I feel like this has been an indulgence just getting to chat with you. Thank you so much, David Kassira. It's been really truly indulgent and luxurious speaking with you. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> so what was that episode? You know, what was what was that conversation? Who is Vlad? Who, What's going on? Who is Vlad? Who am I? Who are you? What are we doing here? Why a podcast? What's happening? Um, I liked when Vlad put us on the spot and asked like what luxury means to each of us because <laughs> kind of when we kikied earlier, I was like, I already know the answer to this. I'm going to stick with it. And like, for me, I really have related so much of luxury and indulgence to 
monetary or like, you know, kind of extravagant materialistic things. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of deep rooted reasons for that, that deal with like my upbringing, but I stand by it and I am unashamed. And yet. I've said what I said. I said, I said what, I, what said. I said. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. What about you? Um, I, I feel like, you know, I started the Kiki and just being like, I want to talk about things that I like and that I buy and things that I don't think are cute for folks to be indulging in performative or, you know, whatever. And I ended up just focusing on things like, you know, how we take care of ourselves experiences. And, um, you know, just like my answer when Vlad posed the question, I really enjoy that taking care, whether I'm taking care of myself, or I'm taking care of somebody else, or thinking about, you know, a guest experience at a bar being taken care of it doesn't have to be the most expensive this, this and that. But if someone explains to you all the nuances and the flavors, it can feel like something that you're stepping into. That's unique. Um, but here, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to say that I'm I- going to throw all of that out. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> all of that's going out of the window. All of that is going out the window. Um, I really, I mean, I think coming from a place of abundance and being able to really sit and enjoy that in a in a public setting is totally great. And I say public setting because people are listening to me say this, but like I like going places and being like, I don't need to announce it, but I'm going to spend whatever I need to spend and I'm just going to enjoy myself, whether that be stepping into a bar and having five cocktails and one of them is $22 and one of them's $15 or whatever, or stepping into Nordstrom's and being like, I am just literally going to buy whatever I want. Nobody talked to me about a budget. I like the immediate gratification um, that spending or, you know, a moment of reprieve that's so luxurious or indulgent um, can really offer. I'm really here for that immediate gratification because, sis, I ain't got a lot of serotonin floating around um, in this quarantine. So if I can click a button and spend $800 on redecorating my living room and I feel good for a second, I'm going chase, to chase that dragon. You know what I'm saying? Oh my God, Kasira, <laughs> those were song lyrics. That was gorgeous. That was just poetic. I... I 100% align with you on all of this. I, I'm the same. It's funny. We're very similar in like that. We don't publicly necessarily want people to know that we're indulging, but we also like don't really care if they know. I just don't want it to be a spectacle, you know? So for me, I, I think of like my first moments of indulgence were probably when I was in college. And when I was working through college, I was like paying off student loans, but I also knew that my student loans were going to be something that I like paid off over the course of my lifetime. So I allowed myself to like spend a bit of that money that I was making and I was working in restaurants and I was working in bars and I knew what I liked and I kind of knew how to order, you know, in a, I thought like a really um, sophisticated way. And my first kind of form of, of indulgence was like solo dining at a fancy ass place and doing a tasting menu and doing the pairings with it. And I was a college kid doing that and it was it was sexy it was everything I still love doing that to a certain extent I now have an appreciation for like doing that in pretty much any setting I was just telling you before we were recording that like honestly if I go into a fast food place like if I go into a McDonald's and I'm feeling like super extra I'm like I'm gonna fucking order three meals extra fries and the shake and I don't need any of this but I'm gonna do it because I can't it's just there's a moment where you're just like I just want to feel good about this and I'm gonna do it I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah. I like, um, 
I, I think I'd like to end on, you know, I want to find another phrase for big dick energy, but I, you know, wet pussy energy, wop energy, big dick energy, just going and dropping exactly what you want and getting exactly what you want in return. And, um, you know, I think the highest achievable level of indulgence for me on a monetary level, since I've decided to switch gears now, um, is just stepping into a bougie department store or a bougie um, brand store, like going to Louis Vuitton. I haven't done it yet. Um, but being like, yeah, sis, I look how I look. You know what I'm saying? But I'm about to drop these racks and you're not ready. <laughs> so... With that being said, um, thank you all for tuning in. <laughs> We're going to end on that. Thank you so much. Carry, carry that indulgent, big dick, WAP energy with you. Um, the next time you make a purchase, whether it be big or small, the next time that you treat yourself to something or give a gift to your partner or buy a bottle of wine or make yourself food and just not answer your phone, that can be indulgent as well. I think being unproductive can be an indulgent moment. Um, so, yeah. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Anthropological. It's been cute. Cheers. Um, boo. Boo, 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 okay. boo, boo. Talk I about indulging. Portland doesn't have no sales tax. What? So I'm trying to... Yeah, you didn't know that? Portland or doesn't have any sales tax. So if you want to indulge in something nice, you can come over here and not get that 10, get 10% off, essentially. Oh my god. <laughs>